Welcome to the Future Food Citizenship Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm Sinead. Join us in conversations with the changemakers shaping a new, fairer food system. Welcome to our last podcast of 2018. Earlier this year, Future participated in the Global Green Village at Electric Picnic Festival. In the Speak Easy tent, Oliver Moore hosted a panel discussion around the hot topic of the pro and cons of meat eating. Here's a recording of that session. Enjoy and stay tuned for more exciting podcasts coming up in 2019. Thank you very much for your support. Um, but yeah, it was actually, it was like my um, gateway experience for food ethics and food politics really, was um, the, uh, just the, actually what it was, was I was, this, this meal is vegetarian so it's easier to say this, I, I remember watching a dehorning um, being done late, um, and that was, that was rough, um, just to actually see that in, in real life, I was thinking, hey, it's just for the sake of your taste buds, I mean, come on, you don't really need that. Um, yeah, so 16 years later, after that, I stopped being a vegetarian for long and complicated reasons, which may come out in the course of our conversation here. But uh, yeah, so I'm conflicted a little bit on this topic. I mean, I do certainly see lots of the, the case for producing food with as little um, animal input as possible. And I know how space efficient vegetable production can be compared to outdoor extensive farming. Uh, but I've also been fascinated at this new movement that's emerged where people are trying to integrate livestock into farming systems in a way that builds carbon to the point that it's a carbon drawdown and then just working out the balances between the different um, greenhouse gases and the different um, land use changes and so on. So I'm now going to, that's, that's where I'm coming from on this debate. I haven't got, actually got a fixed position on it. Um, I try to eat lots more vegan and vegetarian food all the time, and then sometimes eat some of the meat. Is what I'm currently trying to do. So that's that's me and my kind of background position. I'd like to hear what people have to say themselves as we get into the discussion of it. So I'm going to start with, on my right with Owen. Um, Owen Powell is going to just introduce himself and his background from two perspectives: the farming and environmental science. Thank you. Owen Powell. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm and uh, about 120 hectares, about 288 acres I think, or more. And uh, yeah, it was basically a conventional dairy farm. Um, as a young guy, I wanted to sort of get out of farming, I didn't really want to milk cows. So I went to uni and actually got into doing a PhD in environmental science and I did a specialised in uh, rangeland ecology in uh, Western Queensland, looking at environmental change in the uh, semi-arid desert and uh, yeah, looking at different land use techniques, drivers of land use change. Um, and sort of make the story short, I came back to Tassie four years ago after I sort of got out of the university game and took on the family farm. And so now I'm back uh, dealing with cows and I grow dairy cows and uh, a few head of beef and that's that's pretty much the summary, yeah. Okay, so and Owen can talk about the um, farming techniques he's using as well, but that's just to give you an introduction. So um, next we have Aideen from Young Friends of the Earth. Hey, how's it going everyone? Uh, me and my SDG are going to move a bit closer. Okay. Um, yes, so hi. Uh, I am Aideen. I'm a 
volunteer with Young Friends of the Earth. We are over in the Grove tent during the day and um, talking about food sovereignty, which is our campaign at the moment. So we're a group of um, volunteers and what we're all about is kind of facilitating learning about environmental issues. We're an activist group and this year what we're talking about is food, food sovereignty, environmental impact of your food, um, and obviously maybe that's why we're here. Think about um, the, the different sort of ideas around around meat and veganism and vegetarianism. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to um, hearing what everyone has to say. I'm kind of sandwiched between two farmers, so like, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I suppose that does make you the meat and the sandwich then, doesn't it really? <laughs> um, Sinead. Uh, yeah, so I'm Sinead. I'm a little hesitant to say I'm a farmer because I think I'm still kind of kind of underneath there, so we'll stay for another one. Um, yeah, kind of like Owen grew up on a farm in Mayo, uh, never had much interest in farming, definitely never saw myself back in Mayo farming. Um, long story short, ended up going back to college to which was students focusing on politics and geography and then from there really kind of got into the environmental side of stuff um, and kind of human and social geography and things. And then from there I went to Galway and and I did a master's in climate change, agriculture and food security. And that was framed by experience in Alkoshka and a few other things where I worked on common agricultural policy and agricultural policy. And then there, uh, during my master's, I focused in on sustainable diet. So that was kind of really looking at the big meat question. And then, so while I was doing that, my partner had been left to farm and he decided to put cows on it. So I instantly struggled with the whole climate change and cow question. So that kind of forced me to look at, was there some way that we could make this work? And I suppose from there, I kind of came across first, Sligo YT's research on high nature value farmland, particularly in the west of Ireland. And then also, through my masters, I got to meet Natalie, uh, who's over there. And Natalie and I originally thought that we'd start a blog telling people about all these great farmers that were doing things above and beyond organics in Ireland. And from there, that became Future. And Future, we create content where we try to really connect people with food and how it's produced, because particularly from an environmental perspective, that's what's key. Um, and we're trying to map these farmers that are, are going to go beyond. So that's kind of where we are. Okay, so you've got a mic now between you. Um, so, yeah, so I suppose first off, I'd like to maybe get some idea of the parameters of the effects that the industrial meat industry is having. Um, I think, all to some extent, your background in environmental science could help with. Could you just give us a brief outline of what, where, what you think the impact is? Okay, so basically you're getting uh, methane emissions from cows when they're eating grass and they're rooming. And uh, also the slurry effects from dairies and, and livestock production. Um, and the other thing that is maybe not focused on, those are sort of the basic ones, but also meat as a driver of land use change. Uh, basically, Large areas of uh, Western Queensland and New South Wales were converted from arid uh, forests into grazing production, and likewise in South America and then more so in South Asia. And it's also the growing middle class and demand for meat, which 
is also driving these environmental changes. So I think that's also the big one too, where, um, yeah, it's, it's not just the production itself, but it's also the drivers of land use change, and that's, a, I think, a really big concern. Okay, and um, Indian, just in relation to food sovereignty, can you give a little brief outline of what food sovereignty is and how it relates to um, your position? Yeah, absolutely. So food sovereignty, the sort of the technical definition of it is is it's that everyone should have the right to produce their their own food, to have the resources to produce their own culturally appropriate healthy food. Um, and so that's like the academic definition of food sovereignty. But for us, what we've been focusing on is growing your own food, getting people thinking about where their food comes from, what the food supply chain is like, what's happening through this global food supply chain. I'm particularly looking at Ireland as well as a, you know, a massive exporter of meat. You know, 91% of our beef is exported. Like we take in around 100,000 tons of chicken we import and we export 100,000 tons of chicken. You know, it's to think about these kind of, what's happening throughout the supply chain and the inequalities as well in terms of um, people, not just the environmental impacts, the social impacts as well. Um, so that's kind of essentially what our campaign is about. Okay, so, and then, um, Sinead, can I ask you that, um, given what we've heard about the environmental impacts of meat and your own kind of struggles, um, how do you turn the farm that you do have with the animals that are on it into something that makes more sense environmentally for you? Um, I think the big thing for us was, um, the land and actually been let fallow for uh, I'd say four years before my partner decided to put cows on it and the minute they were on there you could really begin to see the difference because basically 17 acres of, of ground has never been reseeded, it was never farmed intensively and the farmer who, his uncle had never farmed it intensively either, always a low stock intensity so it's this perfect kind of high nature value farms that they're researching now. Um, but having been left fallow, just rushes were taken over, uh, grasses, not, you know, there was kind of no, it was a little bit dead, the best way I can describe it. And once we put on a few cows, you could really begin to see that difference. And then through our work with Future, we got to meet some of the great farmers like Clive Bride and other things like that. And then that kind of opened us up as farmers to principles of kind of mob raising and holistic management and things like that. And then from there, um, have read up around it and just trying to work things. So what we do now is we have a low stock intensity and we kind of farm with nature in mind so we particularly don't cut silage until as late as we possibly can for bird life uh, we have uh, integrated our hedgerows we're planting more trees to bring in a kind of agroforestry perspective to it and yet we can still produce food and kind of accommodate biodiversity on that farm so there is that fine balance can you, can you Uh, can you tell me as well a little bit Shane, about the um, the drought and how the because the drought obviously came in part from the weather extremes and climate change being more pronounced and more rapid. Um, so we had eight weeks of drought here in Ireland and longer in, in parts of Europe. And I spent a lot of time talking to farmers during the summer about what was working for them and not working for them in terms of um, dealing with the drought. Um, and Sinead's farm seemed to do okay, relatively speaking, in the drought. So. Yeah, I'd be hesitant to say that because everyone's like, oh, we're doing okay. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing for us was actually we're technically overstocked. Um, 
probably not utilizing our land as best as we should be. We're not being as productive um, as we should be. But because we're understocked and because the way we graze, um, we uh, we kind of, we never really had a drought issue. So, well, the long winter also meant that our cows went out a month later. So that actually did have a bit of an impact as well. And that's kind of where we felt it was that long winter stage a little bit. And, but yeah, we the big thing for us was the was the fact that we are understocked. You know, obviously, the way we graze, we get a lot of ground cover with our grass. So our cows go in, they kind of eat the tops of the grass, and we mop graze them. So you put them into a tight little space, they munch, 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 make peace for themselves, sit down, chill out for a while, and then the next day we kind of move them on. So you get this good kind of trample on your ground. So I think that also really helps in regards to to moist soil moisture and things like that. And then tree cover. Tree cover was a massive big thing for animal health. So every day during, like when we had 30, 31 degrees, you'll find all the cows completely relaxed underneath the trees. Whereas farms near and, and other farms that you see kind of if you're driving by, cows were indoors because they obviously they were reduced to that issue. But the trees was a big thing for us as well. Yeah, so, so I think what's interesting here is that it's, it's the, the number of trees that the number of animals on the farm made it easier for the system to cope with the extreme weather because the tree's root system is helping with the soil structure and the tree's height is protecting the animals from the sun. Um, but these things will all be considered inefficiencies or less productive. And this is the problem, this is the conundrum of, um, of bringing some of these environmental issues into farming systems that immediately you're accused of being less efficient, less yield-focused, less productive. But of course, the mainstream agricultural system yields an awful lot of stuff, some of which we don't want. Like, um, the very high stocking rates means nitrogen and phosphorus in the, in the water. Um, it also means very stressed out animals and grass, you know, grazed right down to the, to the base. So, so I play, yeah, I, I, I want to see, um, like, from a young friend of your perspective, um, what level of, or what style of meat production is acceptable or unacceptable, um, and how do you, how do you think that farming would, for example, bring um, fertility into the into the farming system? If it's a mostly horticulture and tillage-based system, they're very tough on um, soil structure and soil quality. Um, you tend to get a lot, a lot less carbon in. Um, in tillage and horticulture farming systems compared to permanent grassland, for example. Um, so, yeah, could you speak to some of those issues around um, fertility in, in farming systems? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like it's fascinating to hear about Sinead's, to hear Sinead's point of view and to hear her experience. Because, I mean, you know, when you're on Friends of the Earth, we might, might be a lot of us who are vegan and vegetarian, but we're not anti meat and we're certainly not anti farmers. I think that's a really important thing to. To get across is that okay so agriculture is 30 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions it accounts for 30 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions you know it's a big issue we're well behind on our climate targets um well behind doesn't even cover our, our you know our, our climate report our climate action performance is appalling so we do have to look at how we produce meat um but we certainly don't what we need is more farmers like Sinead and less less big companies and less of the government trying to double the beef herd, trying to sell milk powder to China, 
that's what we need less of. And I mean, if you look at, we have some of these stats over there in our stand. I'm going to plug the stand just for a minute. You know, come over tomorrow between 12 and 6. Um, but anyway, we have some of these stats in our stand that, like, for a, for a chicken, for every chicken sold, the farmer gets 10% of the profit, the processor gets 40% of the profit, and the retailer gets the final 50%. So there's something massively wrong with that, you know? So, I mean, it's great people farming like you are with regard to, with regard to biodiversity, with regard to the environment, with, with regard to the cows, with regard to the animals. Um, and that's what we need. That's the kind of farming we want more of. And we need to really look at the way we're doing things. Otherwise. Yeah. Great. And um, also, um, John Brennan is a beef farmer from um, Leash, sorry, no, Leitrim. And um, he was actually on the board of um, Friends of the Earth um, for a while. Um, not young Friends of the Earth, Friends of the Earth Europe. Um, that's quite interesting about that Irish beef farmer who's organic was on the board of Friends of the Earth. So like it's, I think people, a lot of people have actually moved on from a polemical position and have worked out some nuances. Um, Owen, can you tell me a little bit about some of the practices on your farm, which you described as, you kind of, you realised they were the thing that people called mob grazing afterwards, but you didn't know that that's what you were doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we do need to do regenerative farming. I wouldn't necessarily describe the farm on that in most terms. We are incorporating practices which are more sustainable and more efficient. So some of those techniques, of course, is soil grazing, mob grazing, which is kind of normal on most farms, partly due to the size and also it's a more efficient way of using, it's not even about the environment, it's just a more efficient way of using pasture. And likewise, some of the other techniques are more um, uh, lip reefs, and which are also great for like restoring vegetation, building carbon, and they're great for cows, they provide shelter, also reduce uh, the uh, wind across the, the paddocks which drive them out a little bit more and also improve um, water quality. So on the farm itself we um, fenced off about 20 hectares of native forest and that actually has some benefits too because it allows us to subdivide the farm into, into different cells which improves the efficiency of the grazing regime by moving around while you've effectively subdivided more land. So that's, that, that's the start there. Yeah and then um I suppose we're actually going to as well, we're going to go around with a, a roving mic to get some feedback or opinion from people on, on their own position on, um, on puppy pee, <laughs> their own position on, um, on this issue on, on, on vegetarianism, veganism and livestock in, in animal systems. Um, so yeah, so Is anybody ready to make a little contribution from the audience? Anybody got the burning points to make? Connor! 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 Yes, he's saying it, he's saying it. Um, what have you got to say? Uh, I, stopped, I stopped eating meat about a year and a half ago. As, um, I, no, I was always a meat eater. Uh, and I don't really know why I made the decision to stop eating meat. It's kind of maybe slowly kind of burning away that I don't need to do this anymore. Or it's not something I, I, I need to do. But I'm a big man, you know, I'm a big physical man. So I like eating, I, I did like eating and, and, and getting full of meat. But the, the, the journey into vegetarianism has been really easy. It's, it's, you know, I haven't missed it at all. It's just kind of 
I don't need to do that anymore and that's you just pull something that you don't do. But uh, I thought it was something that might take longer, but it's been relatively easy. And, uh, and that's it. And is that vegetarianism? Is that vegetarianism or veganism? Just vegetarianism. Any other insights? Anyone else got any thoughts on this topic that always facilitated? Hello, okay, okay, we need microphones. Um, so the question there was, why is it so easy? Why is being vegetarian so easy? How is it easy? Okay, here's Patrick. Hiya. Um, I didn't catch all of the talk, uh, but one thing that's in mind is that what's being presented is almost by agri far, uh, agriculture, stuff like that, but it's almost the peak or the pinnacle of using animals intelligently in, in combination with growing systems. But I'm wondering about the general context of meat in the world is actually that it's appalling, you know, in terms of, uh, well, every, everything in terms of the abuse of animals, uh, in terms of the actual environmental effect, that it is possible, as you're presenting, to raise livestock in an intelligent uh, manner and consideration of the environment. But yet, I didn't really pick up the context, which is that the majority of meat, as I would see the way which it's reared, is extremely detrimental. And I kind of wonder if it's possible by holding the pinnacle as not exactly the normality, but that we could almost feel better and that it's possible to have meat in a, in a healthy manner. But yet, it is possible, but it's uh, the rarity rather than, yeah. Okay, so it's almost, so you're, you're wondering about where like, we've got some, Sinead is like the human shield for the meat industry here in the front. She's like the person they put on the front of the Farmer's Journal next week, going, we have a solution. We have a solution. We can keep producing the meat. That was happening Sinead, is it? No, I think I'm always quite conscious when I'm having uh, any of these talks that I certainly don't want it to come across that I'm uh, a big meat eater person myself or that I'm pro meat eating. Um, I honestly know from my own research and from everything else around us, everyone needs to eat a lot less meat. We also need to eat lots less dairy and everything else. But that doesn't mean that we just get rid of it and that the animals don't have a role within our ecosystems, our agroecological systems. They do. So I actually eat very little meat because I only know one farmer who has 100% grass-fed beef and who raises them to the standard I would expect. So we, that's the only meat that I have. No one's going to make a lot of money off what we do. The other part of that as well is that for us to make a living from having understocked, people need to pay a lot more for their meat, or they need to pay a lot more for their dairy. So if people add a lot less, paid a bit more, and we reduce our stocking numbers completely, and we, um, particularly on the climate front in Ireland, we have to reduce our stock numbers. But there's a big difference between industrial meat and dairy and the kind of things that we do. And there is a lot of farmers in Ireland that are doing that. And at Future, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find these guys and to highlight them to the general public and say, look at, stop buying Tesco-sponsored cheap meat. Um, because these are the costs. Because every time you buy cheap food, someone, something, somewhere covers that cost. So it's about 
pain a bit more for better quality and for an animal that has a has a lot of pain and breaks. Okay, great. So um, I'd like to discussion within grain growing and uh, raising cattle is uh, the raising cattle on the ground it doesn't till the soil releasing carbon into the soil and how great it is putting that carbon back into the soil using regenerative agriculture and within grain growing we till the soil all the time and not just grain growing through tillage we turn over that soil so there's a big movement within grain growing of no-till but within that they're using a lot of glyphosate to break down the weeds from year to year and then replanting on top of it. They, they say responsibly using glyphosate. But then again, it's using pesticides and herbicides and the likes of that to negate the use of tillage to keep the carbon in the soil. Do you have any insights into that? I do, yeah. Um, uh, that's your snake and tillage talk into a, a meat discussion, Joe. Joe the baker, do this thing again. But, but I, veganism, yeah, yeah. But anyway, no, it's true. It's, and also, of course, the cereal gets fed to the animals. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll allow that question. Um, yeah, I would say, I suppose, um, yeah, just for, to fill you a little bit more on that point that Joe's talking about, um, there are some techniques emerging now whereby conventional cereal crop growers, and tillage farmers, can avoid ploughing, which means that the soil is less disturbed and carbon can build reasonably well underneath it. Um, and that's better environmentally. The problem is they nearly always have to do is with um, herbicides to give the, the grasses you want or the grains you want the chance to grow up quicker um, and to get the weeds killed off quickly and early. So you end up with this conundrum whereby you automatically have herbicide use, a massively increased amount of herbicide use, but you also save soil carbon by not tilling. So it's a little bit like the regenerative ag kind of story in terms of um, building soil carbon. We have to try and get more carbon into the ground. If we leave the carbon in the ground, there's currently in the ground. And yeah, so this is a technique that's emerged in conventional farming, but it, it automatically forces you into a system of um, mineral fertilizers and herbicide use. So, so what's the answer? Or what's the solution? Because organic farming also does a really good job at building carbon in the soil through crop rotations, cover crops, patch crops, um, companion plant and sort of techniques. And also more mulching. Um, so one of the solutions is a min till rather than no till and with complex rotations in organic farming systems and that needs to be de developed more. There's a farmer in um, Cork called um, Tom Cooley who's pioneering this approach in Ireland. He's been a master's in organic farming in, um, in Aberdeen at the moment while um, also being in, in a farmer in Cork. 
and he's managed to come up with a way to not use herbicide um, without tilling or with just scraping the top of the land so that the deep carbon isn't disturbed. But I would say as well, because I don't think, I think this is too specialist really for, for people, just only somebody to talk to me afterwards if you want about it. Um, the, um, there's lots of controversy over whether no-till production really does build deep soil carbon or whether it just builds surface soil carbon and it's not particularly suited to wet climates um, like we tend to have in Northwest Europe. So I would say that it's probably being pushed very hard because it's a business as usual approach that probably needs to be integrated more to organic systems and agroecological systems than, um, than maintaining monoculture production. Would be my short answer to that question, Joe. Thanks for asking that question. Um, so, so I think, is there anyone else now from the audience who, okay, we got one more down here, is there one more mic? Straight down in front of Joe. Hi, um, my name is Claudia. I'm also a member of the University of the Indian. Um, we took part in a pre-content the last two years, and this year we're thinking of teaming up with a few dairy farmers to try and encourage them to plant more trees on their land to create more carbon sinks and to counter the emissions that they're producing. And um, I'm just wondering if you farmers over there would have any advice on how we could approach the kind of more mainstream dairy farmers and how to get them on board with simply planting more trees, not trying to scare them off with any sort of environmentalism, but just to kind of simply take that first step. Well, I've got to be diplomatic. And how do we get large-scale dairy farms to plant more trees? Obviously, we want more farmers to plant more trees. I would have questions in how do they, we could get into an agroforestry based system, but any kind of schemes that we have in Ireland under the CAP, which is the Common Agricultural Policy for Agroforestry, is very specific. So we wouldn't get anything like that on our farm because we have to plant trees every so many particular meters and perfect straight lines and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of the classic question and everything. How do we get most? of the farmers in Ireland to think differently about farming. And I think probably one of the easiest ways will come probably firstly with economics is to what can we get out of it? Because there's actually very few farmers in Ireland who are making a living off farming. Most of them are working full-time jobs and farming is something that's part-time and then it pays a few odd bills. And then dairy is statistically uh, the most kind of high-waged, uh, biggest incomes. So I think um, I think probably I would suggest maybe starting with smaller farmers and working with them to plant more trees into their hedgerows. It was something my partner said before that you know we have so many hedgerows that are, are butchered every every year and really what we should what we could be doing as that first initial step and move into that agroforestry model is working with the smaller farmers who probably have a lot more hedgerows as it is anyhow. Um, particularly in the west of Ireland and encourage them to plant more trees and native trees into the land because in Ireland at the minute and particularly in the west coast we are losing a lot of farmland to Sitka spruce and Sitka is not the answer either particularly in the climate debate it always comes down between let's we have a grass-based system so let's pump more beef and powdered milk 
to the poorest people in the world and we'll plant the whole West Coast in Sicca and offset it and it all our carbon emissions are perfect on paper. So perhaps maybe we could go a different way with trees and my suggestion would be actually start with the smaller guys first because I think you'll probably find a better reception as well. And I, I, I agree with you in regards to the environmental front. I think a lot of farmers are conscious of the environment, but yeah, the, the media has painted that perfect picture of, of farmer versus environmentalist. Like most of the farmers near to us see me as an environmentalist, because I would be an environmentalist, but I'm quite happy to comment on that. But anyway, so yeah, that would be my suggestion. Bring on in a sec for his um, talk for this but I would say that um, there are some initiatives that are quite successful in this now, which mostly fall into the high nature value farming category. So what you tend to get is farm extension workers um, talking to farmers as a group about how they could be slightly better supported under CAP um, for their high nature value farming if they're storing biodiversity, for example. Um, so there's an example of dairy farmers in Cork actually being brought into environmental schemes um, called um, Breda, um, which is a new one. But there's been lots of high nature value farming initiatives, which are good ways, because they're led by farm extension workers primarily, who already deal with farmers. So they're starting from a different point. But the farmers who are involved in these kind of initiatives are the kind of farmers who could be approached. Um, but also then there's systems of support that are working for farmers in these high nature value schemes are the kind of things that should happen first and foremost to encourage the dairy farm to do approach to actually take it on because otherwise it becomes a voluntary thing and it becomes more difficult and the whole context is defined by funding unfortunately but 80 percent of irish farmland has high nature value potential and only 20 percent really since that high-end heavy production if you can consider that to be in any sense ever that the production that you want there's only really 20% of our farmland that can do that 20% farmland is up to grabs to be more environmentally sustainable and food producing at the same time so we're going to wrap up this conversation by soon I'm going to give Owen a chance to talk about talking to farmers as well
Thank you all. Um, so, are we? Anyone else got any any comments to bring up? Because otherwise, we'll, we'll continue with the um, the uh, the entertainment. I suppose I'll try to wrap up as well in terms of describing what we. So, um, yeah, so thank you for contributing and for getting involved in the conversation. Um, it happened to have been a vegetarian meal, mostly vegan meal, so you didn't have that conundrum whereby you moved more towards one part of the plate or the other, depending on how compelling and convincing all the different positions were for you. So hopefully we'll give you some, as it were, food for thought. Oh, one, one more big one. Right now, okay. Come to this Hello, how are you um, it's A lot of things is to affirm policy, really, and it's, you see, Europe is you 500 million people living in Europe, and um, within Ireland, you had a grass system whereby you had many types of grasses, right? And you had low stock, right? Okay? Now, we went from there to higher stock levels, right? I, I do a lot of traveling, right? like a gypsy musician, right? But at the same time, I'm all time listening. So when, when Ireland was told to boost their stock levels to, to, um, for, for, for dairy, right? The guys in Dindark, right? Bought a load of sheep and put them on islands, right? Okay, so what I think is people should look into the detail of what is the repercussion of what it would what would it mean just not now but in five years time and who, who who's going to benefit right so ultimately we're living here right and we're in an ecosystem right so what you need to do possibly is to look at your ecosystem right and um walk together do you understand so and i try to like I, I worked for a company you know, um, years ago, and well, it's actually a few years ago, and I could be, it could be litigation to be talking here, right? But, um, it was a GM company, right? Yeah. Okay. And in the company, right, they had um, this to do with mosquitoes, right? And there was these lecturers come in, and I was an eco, I, I would, I, I would have my acre, and I had hares running up and down the garden. You would care for Eco's ecosystem, right? Go on your, go on your veg, do a bit of shoot, you know, basically normal, normal. Now, you went in over this and this is, what we have is, in, in, in the world, right? They have, um, there's a thing, an aphid for, you know, for cops, right? And what's happening is the aphid is getting more intelligent, right? So, you're doing your model cops, right? And the aphid is, they do a spray on, on the aphids and the aphid then goes, well I can handle that, right? And every time you spray, basically you produce a super bug, right? So they went right in Ireland, and a lot of people don't know this, but there's a lot of crops that are in the monoculture at the moment and uh, these crops, won't, you won't be able to grow these crops anymore because the aphids won't itch it, right? So, um, well, I, I was much said as I can know, but I, I'm yeah. just trying to share a bit of information. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's about, I suppose, um, policy defines so much like, because when you mentioned that about the Irish dairy being doubled and so on, I was thinking Ireland and Austria are the two countries with the best carbon score for dairy, which is one of the reasons that Ireland gets away with 
saying that it can keep producing dairy, but the average herd size in Austria is 12 cows, and the, the average price of milk is about two, two and a half times what the Irish farmer gets. So like, and like there's a local farm near where I live, um, the Crawford's farm, I mean they're doing organic raw milk delivered to the door, they've a herd of about 12 cows as well, um, and they get about two quid a bottle, two quid a litre. So we think of two quid a litre compared to um, 30 centimetre or 22 centimetre, if you start to look at the logic of the systems that do force you to go into this bigger and bigger and bigger and death and death and death, yeah. and then insurance, 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 and so you've got this system that also reduces the population of the countryside as well because there's fewer and fewer farmers left because you have to have the bigger and bigger farms. Yeah. So there are definitely different models out there, um, but we need to, I've been told we need to, to wrap this up because we're going to have, oh, and I'm going to give Aileen the last last word because she has spoken in a short while um, about food sovereignty and the different here. Thank you so much. I actually just want to say something really quickly about policy. With our agriculture policy and our climate policy, the government is taking away our futures, right? What we need to do, some of us can go vegan and it's great, and some of us are trying different methods of farming, that's great, but what really, we really need to do is let the government know that we do not like their climate policy, we do not like their agriculture policy, and we want, we want to be able to have a future in Ireland, and also around the world as well. So, I'd just like to say that, you know, radicalise and get active. Yeah, so, um, so thank you very much uh, to, um, to Sinead, to Aideen and to Owen, um, our panel. There was no blood in the water. It was all quite amicable in a good way. It was good to get some get these different perspectives. And uh, we're now going to continue with some um, well, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Let's just make a closing of that and then an opening of the next. So okay. Oli Moore and his panel. Just to remind us what we're doing here, this is our speakeasy special. We're repeating it tomorrow night. That's it for now, folks. Thanks a million for listening. To those of you who produce food, why not join the Fair Food Movement? Get involved, get in touch, join us. And if you're into Fair Food, then become a supporting member or check out our Patreon page to help us create more content like this. Until next time, eat well, choose fair.